0: John chapter 1, we're continuing in our series, Missio Christi, the mission of Christ, and this is Flash part 2, Flash part 2. And if you weren't here last week, you want to get the CD or the DVD or something, uh, because this is part two. So you want last week for some continuity and some understanding. There will be a part three to this message. So if you don't get it next week, you're going to be all messed up. So get that somehow. You go to the CD, DVD table. You go to iTunes and download it for free. You go to the website, you get it for free, Febu, anywhere. Go somewhere, get that thing, download it, because uh, this is part 2 Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this morning in your grace and because of the cross, you would speak to us and that you would be present in our midst. And Lord, I pray that not a single person that's coming to this place today would miss your beauty, your presence, your love, your redeeming power, that your love is bigger than our sin, bigger than our failures, bigger than our rebellion, that you're able to pull us out of the most horrible pit transform our lives Lord I pray that everyone in here would experience your love and your glory today and we pray that you would not only love on us wonderfully but you would teach us to love on others with the love that we've received you would make us less selfish and more selfless Lord you make us less self less self-absorbed and more on mission with you Jesus we've tasted and seen that you are good we've experienced your strength and your love and your beauty and we want the world to know but we're kind of messy people, Lord. So we ask that you'd help us today, that you'd speak to us, you'd do an awesome work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of your name. We ask you together in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so we've been talking about this thing that Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I send you. So Jesus was sent on a mission, and he then sends us on a mission and we're wanting to discover what does that mean how do we live life on mission with and for Jesus Christ and one of the things that we talked about last week is that foundational to the sending of Christ is the incarnation of Christ part of Christ being sent to save the world is that he took on human flesh In the miracle of miracles, God draped himself in humanity that he might save humanity. And so now in light of that, because he said in the way I've been sent, and he was sent incarnationally, that we are now sent, we've been talking about incarnational mission and ministry, really just incarnational Christianity. I would argue that that's biblical Christianity, that we are to live lives, like Christ lived in the flesh. That we are to incarnate Christ. What does it mean to incarnate? It means to embody. That that when Christ became flesh, he embodied the very presence and glory and power and person of God. And that we are to embody the presence and the person and the power of God, not in the same way, we're not Jesus, but in a very real way. In a very powerful way, we are to embody who Christ is to a lost, dying, hurt, and confused world. And so what we're wanting to discuss together is how do we do that? How do we embody the gospel? How do we as God's people embody God to those who need him most? How can we be Christ in the flesh? To people that need to know him. That's what we're talking about. How can we be Christ in the flesh, so to speak, for people that need to know him? It was uh, St. Francis of Assisi that first said a long time ago preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. And we've heard that before, and I think C.S. Lewis made it even more famous. And it's been aligned and mistreated and misquoted and misused throughout history. But there's a profound truth there, that in our lives and through our living, we are to preach the gospel at all times. This is incarnational Christianity and mission and ministry. So in the book of John, chapter 1, where you are, in verse 14, It says concerning Jesus that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the eternal word, Christ Jesus became flesh, took on humanity and dwelt among us, came to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And then verse 18 explains part of what the incarnation accomplishes. It says in John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God, or some translations say the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So when Christ came and stepped into history, was made in the flesh, He explains God to humanity in the context of history. The incarnation is the explanation of, of the love of God, the character of God, the person of God, the glory of God, the mission of God, the plan of God. The incarnation is the explanation, or as we talked about last week, the exegesis, which is just a fancy preacher word for explanation. It means to unfold. So in Christ taking on flesh, we have the unfolding of who God is to us. The declaration, the making known, Jesus in the flesh is a full and final revelation of who God is. So much so that the Bible says, and we can say, if you want to know what God is like, look at Christ. Right? That's what the Bible would say. He's the explanation of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. Now, the Bible would also say, and we should say, if you want to know what Christ is like, look at Christians. And as we mentioned last week, that first one works beautifully. Jesus is a great explanation of God. The second one is a little hairball, a little messy. We are supposed to be in the world the explanation of who Jesus Christ is. And yet, if someone would look at the Gospels carefully and look at our lives carefully, I think most of us could admit that there would be a disparity, as we spoke of last week, a great difference there. Between the Christ that we find in the pages of the Bible and the Christ that is made evident in our lives, between the way that he lived and interacted with people and the way that we live and interact with people, there seems to be too great of a difference, this great disparity. So much so, that the three most common perceptions of Christians among non-Christians in North America are that we are anti-homosexual, 97% of non-Christians said that, judgmental, 87% of non-Christians said that, and hypocritical, 85% said that. Nowhere in that list is loving, compassionate, generous, Kind, merciful, humble, caring, self-sacrificial. It's not on there. The top three perceptions of you and I are that we are anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. And it strikes us like a ton of bricks. At least it does me. That thing I heard somewhere, that I may be the only Bible that some people will ever read. They're not going to pick up a Bible to find out who Jesus is. They're going to look at my life. And so everything that they will ever know about Jesus might come from what they see and how we live. That is true for so many people around us. We are in an increasingly biblical, illiterate culture. What they're going to know about Jesus is what they're going to see in us. And and how we seem to be explaining Jesus is as anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. It's a bad explanation of who Jesus is. And as we mentioned last week, part of the problem, part of how we got here, is our tendency to either cocoon away from culture, combat culture, or just give up and conform to culture. And and that's a lot of the problem. You see, they think that we are anti-homosexual because we're combative. We fought some of the wrong battles on the wrong front for the wrong reasons. They think we're judgmental because we cocoon away from them in our little Christian enclaves. And they think that we're hypocritical because they see that we eventually seem to just conform to culture around us and we look like everyone else. And 84% of young, not yet Christians know a committed Christian, but only 15% say they've ever seen a difference in the lives of those Christians. But what the incarnation of Christ, Christ in the flesh is supposed to do is shape and inform the way that we live in the world. Shape and inform the way that we live in the world. You see, the reason we're not supposed to cocoon away from people is because Christ came to people. The reason that we're not supposed to combat people is because Christ came to reconcile people to God and to one another. The reason that we're not supposed to conform to this world is because Christ was otherworldly in his character and his holiness. And so the incarnation of Christ becomes the model for mission, the model for Christian living. And I'm going to use mission synonymous for Christian living because we're all supposed to be on mission with Christ for the glory of the Father by the power of the Spirit. And just as the nature of God or the essence of God is the genesis or the basis of mission, that mission exists because of the essence or nature of God, that God is love that reaches out. So then the mode of mission or the action of mission is based on the incarnation of Jesus. And so here's what we see in the incarnation. Here's a correct theological understanding that when... Christ took on humanity. He was fully man and yet fully God. Okay, that's what the Bible says. Now, throughout history, there's been heresies and misunderstandings and part man and part God and a bit of divinity and this and that and the other. But what the Bible says is that Jesus Christ had a dual nature, fully God and fully man. Okay, we don't understand that because we're not that. Hello, you're not Jesus. And aren't you glad? I'm glad you're not Jesus. But Jesus was fully God and fully man. Hard for us to comprehend, but that's a grammar in the theology of the Bible, okay? Jesus has a dual nature, fully God. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells, Colossians 2.9, and fully man. He took on flesh and blood, Hebrews 13. Now, then following in that dual nature, we can start to understand ourselves, the church, as also having a sort of dual nature, patterned after Christ's dual nature, a sort of dual nature. Here's what I mean. In John 17, Jesus says that we are not of the world because we've been born again, born from above, made new creations, So we're not of the world anymore. And yet he also says in John 17, just a couple verses later, that he sends us into the world. So there's this sort of a dual nature that we have in our identity as a church, that we're not of the world. We've been born again from above, new creations, citizenship is in heaven. And yet we are also sent into the world. We are still members of humanity. That's a dual nature of the church. So we, the church, are both a royal priesthood, Peter says, whose job it is to offer up spiritual sacrifices, that's worship, okay? And we are also a holy nation, whose job it is to proclaim the excellencies of God, that's witness, so there's sort of our dual nature. We're, we're supposed to be a people of worship and a people of witness. We have this double identity or what we might simply call incarnational Christianity. Pattern after the incarnation of Christ. We are a people with a new nature born from above called out of the world in worship to God but we are still members of humanity sent into the world on mission with God. So you and I, the church, are to be a worshiping and witnessing community. A Christian then is someone who worships Jesus and witnesses of Jesus and not either or. And and I think we ought to raise the bar to a biblical standard of what a Christian is. Because I think in many cases we bought into easy believism and a comfortable gospel, and some real easily issued fire insurance. But a biblical definition of a Christian, at least in part, is someone who is both a worshiper of Jesus Christ and one who witnesses of Jesus Christ. That's our identity as Christians. And because this is based in the very incarnational identity of Jesus, you could almost say, as a certain missionary council said in 1952, that there is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission to the world. Now, I understand that that raises a bar and that that makes some of us feel uneasy, perhaps, about our relationship with Jesus. But we've got to understand that through the cross, we are not merely issued fire insurance or told to feel okay but we are called into radical relationship. And that relationship is one that in its very essence reaches out to the world in love and we are to participate in that life of God. If you weren't to do that, then God would kill you and take you to heaven. Until he does, we are to be those people. So the big grand question is, how do we do that? And that's what we hope to unpack for the next 17 years in this series. the first thing that we'll want to realize is this. Okay, here's the first way we'll start to understand that. Here's a quote from John Stott, a book I've commended to you before called The Living Church. It says, Jesus did not stay in the safe immunity of his heaven. Instead, he emptied himself of his glory and humbled himself to serve. He actually entered our world. He took our nature, lived our life, and died our death. He could not have identified, grab that word. He could not have identified with us more closely than he did. Watch this sentence. It was total identification without any loss of identity. The incarnation is total identification with sinful humanity without any loss of his holy identity. For he became one of us without ceasing to be himself. He became human without ceasing to be God. Total identification with broken humanity, without any loss of identity. So God then, as a missionary God, doesn't cocoon away from broken people, but he goes to them. Nor does he conform to the brokenness of the world and the culture. He's distinct from them. What we see in Jesus is that he was totally committed to humanity without ever ceasing to be holy. That's a big deal. Totally committed to humanity without ever ceasing to be holy. Here's here's why we need to grab onto this concept because some of us are more committed to humanity than we are to holiness. More committed to humanity than we are to holiness. You are in the world... For sure, you got that one down pat. You're like, in the world. But so much so, you're still of the world. You're not laying hold of your otherworldly identity in Christ. There's compromise, there's conformity. You're in the world to be sure, but too much in the world. So much so that you're of the world and the world is in you. You've become like a boat gone wrong. You see, here's what a boat is really cool. Anybody ever have a boat? I grew up boating. Here's boating. I grew up boating. Here's when a boat is really cool. A boat is really cool when it's in the water. It's killer. It's better than in the front yard or in the driveway or in the dock. When it's in the water, that's when a boat is really cool. Here's when a boat's really lame. When the water is in the boat. (laughs) That's when a boat's really lame. It's better if it were in the front yard or the driveway or at the dock. If you have a boat, you want it in the water, but you don't want the water in the boat. If you have a Christian, you want him or her in the world, but you don't want the world in him or her. We're to keep ourselves unstained from the world, James one twenty seven. Some of us are far more committed to humanity than we are to holiness. And some of us err on the other side. We're far more committed to holiness, so to speak, than we are to Humanity. Oh, you're not of the world. There's no question about it. You're out of this world. But so much so, you're not in the world anymore. You're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good for the mission of Christ. You've made personal holiness and purity your God. There's some people in the New Testament that did that. They were called Pharisees. Far more committed to your own holiness than you are to humanity. Others, far more committed to humanity than you are to holiness. And both of those are error. Both of those are a failure. You see, Jesus, of course, had the balance and he is our model. Jesus was totally committed to humanity without ever ceasing to be holy because he was concerned for God's glory. And so what Jesus did was he, Spent time with, went to where the sexually broken were, the addicted were, the traitors were. He went to where they were, stepped into the world, spent time with them, was found there, but he never acted like them. He didn't cocoon, he went too but he didn't conform, he never acted like. Those who needed him most, Christ was God in their midst, Emmanuel. There he was, always with them, but never acting like them. So what that means for us is that we are for sure to be set apart in behavior, set apart from the world in behavior, but we are simultaneously to be sent into the world in relationship. That's a dual identity, the dual nature of the church patterned after the dual nature of Christ. We're to be set apart in behavior, separate and distinct, salt and light, but sent into the world in relationship, going to those that need Jesus the most. And because of this truth, because we are sent out by Christ, like Christ was sent out, I would suggest that our most meaningful Christian experiences are supposed to take place not in church. Let me say that again, because some of you churchy folk are very uncomfortable with that. Some of our most meaningful and fruitful Christian experiences should take place outside of the church building. Being on mission in the world is not synonymous with inviting people to a church service. That's not the same thing. Inviting to people to a church service is, is fine. But, but it's not as though you can say, yeah, I invite people to church. I'm on mission. That's not what we're talking about. Inviting people to church services its called inviting people to church services. That's what you call that. You don't call that necessarily being on mission with Christ for the glory of the Father by the power of the Spirit in the world. What being on mission with Christ for the glory of the Father by the power of the Spirit in the world means is loving and serving those furthest from Christ in a way that rightly represents Christ. That's what it means to be on mission. Where you are now. Don't get on a plane where you are right now. It means to love and to serve people that need Jesus in a way that is representative of who Jesus is. Think about it for a minute because this is common to all of us. We all know people who hate church. Anybody know somebody who doesn't like church and they've let you know that? Yeah, we all know somebody who doesn't like church. Why would we then invite that person to church? What what, dude? I hate church. I'm so over the church. I, I don't like church. I I, I I did that. I don't want to go to church. Bro, you should come to church. <laughs> but we seem to do this. This seems to be part of our primary strategy. Is hey, you should you should come to church. If they liked church, they'd be at church. <laughs> Just saying. It seems like maybe they don't like church. Okay, that's okay. They might later on. But if they don't like church and your primary strategy is, hey, you should come to church. Instead, what we ought to do is give them what they need, which is love. Love and an invitation to church are not the same thing. What it means to be on a mission is to love people In a way that is representative of who Christ is. If they're without Christ, you know they need and they want and they like love. If somebody is sick, they don't need an invitation to church. They're laying in bed, sick and withering away, and you say, Come to church. What they need is a Christian who is full of faith and full of the spirit of God to pray for them and to meet their needs, to care for them, to minister to them with the love of Christ, which they have already received, to love with the love which we've been loved with. Not an invitation to church if they're sick, but being where they are, stepping into their pain, their brokenness, their hurt, their sickness, and loving them as we see Jesus doing. And we do this with no strings attached. Okay, now, there's a slippery slope. We do this, we love people, and we serve people with the love of Christ, With no strings attached. Now I got to clarify what I mean by that because that's a slippery slope and that's an issue in the church today. No strings attached does not mean that we do good deeds in the world just for the sake of doing good deeds and merely for the sake of humanity. That's not what I mean. That is what some of the church means is that we just do good deeds for the sake of good deeds and for the sake of humanity and that that is the mission of God in the world. I would take exception with that. I'm not saying that. I don't think that we do good deeds for the sake of good deeds. That's not what I'm talking about when I say no strings attached. I think that we do this love and we do these things and this care and these good deeds for the sake of God and according to the will of God. And Jesus made explicit for us in John 6 what the will of God is. He said, this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son, grab that phrase, everyone who beholds the son and believes in him may have eternal life. So the will of God is that people would be saved, that they would behold the Son, believe in Him, and be saved. So the question is not whether or not we do good deeds in order for it to lead to salvation. We do. We want people to be saved from hell because that's the will of God. The question is, Are we helping people to behold the Son so that they might be saved? Of course we want people to get saved. That's why Jesus came. That's got to be the crux of incarnational ministry. That's not the question for us. The question for us is, are we helping people to see Christ in the flesh? to behold the Son so that they might believe and be saved. Are we incarnating, embodying the person in the work of Jesus so that people could see him and long for salvation and be saved? But no strings attached. You see, Jesus didn't make people go to synagogue before he fed them nor did he make him go to synagogue after he fed them. He seemed to do things like that, no strings attached, but he did it in a way that was so profoundly loving that the love which he showed toward humanity became itself the inescapable strings. And Jeremiah the prophet said and Hosea the prophet said and Paul the apostle said the word of God says that God draws us with his love and his kindness. That the loving kindness of God is like cords that draws us. So you see the love itself is the strings that are attached to the things that we do. So we just seek to embody, demonstrate, unfold, declare, make known the love of Christ to the people around us by what we do. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Now, if we do that well, if we incarnate Christ well, there will come a time when we need to name the name of Christ. Okay? Because Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not just demonstration, it's demonstration and proclamation. It's both of those things, but, but they're, the, they're two sides of the same coin and we'll get into that more next time. But, it, but if, if there doesn't come the time of explaining then verbally because faith comes by hearing the gospel, then we're merely signposts that lead to nowhere or at the very best, a really nice person and we're not called to be really nice people we're called to illustrate Jesus. And he's way cooler than us. The reason that our primary strategy does seem to be to invite people to church is cool. It's because we want to get them and Jesus together, right? That's usually why we do it. I I hope that's why we do it. It, Because we want to get them and Jesus together. We, We want to introduce them to Jesus. So that's usually why we invite people to church. But I want us to realize the underlying assumption of that. What we might be thinking, what we might be assuming when that's our strategy is this, that Jesus is to be found at church. That if you want to find Jesus and if somebody wants to be, you you got to get them into the church building, that Jesus is in church. Now, I hope Jesus is at church. I don't want to do what I do unless Jesus comes to the church when we come here. I hope that that's true. So, yes, he is at church, but that's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He is also in the world. The church doesn't have the corner the, the market on Jesus. You want Jesus? You better go to my church. That's called a cult, not Christianity. You see, we invite people to church because we, we want to introduce them to Jesus, but then we're assuming that the place that you find Jesus is in the church. That's a place. But I want to tell us that Jesus is on mission in and to the world. Religion, properly defined. Religion, properly defined, is humanity's efforts, humanity's efforts to reach and to please God. That's what religion is. And that's what church is for a lot of people. A lot of you are here today purely out of religious motive to reach and to please God. That's a technical definition of religion. Humanity's efforts to reach and to please God. And that's what church is for a lot of people. In contrast to that, in contrast to religion, we have the incarnation The incarnation is God's effort to reach and to save humanity. You flip it on its head. Religion is humanity's efforts to reach and to please God. The incarnation is God's effort to reach and to save humanity. And that is what the church needs to be for more people. For too many of us, the church is a religion thing. For more of us, the church needs to be an incarnation thing, an expression as we go out of God's effort to reach and to save humanity. So what we have when Christ takes on flesh is God reaching out to humanity in the person of Jesus. And where we err is when we try to get people to God. Again, we need to be careful here. We try to get people to God fundamentally we're approaching it backwards. We're, we're being more religious than we are Christian. True Christian mission modeled after God is bringing Jesus to people where they are. Trying to get people to come to God, to come to church is more religious than Christian. To be Christian is to bring Jesus to people wherever they are. That's exactly what God was doing in the incarnation. Matthew one twenty three. his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And we would call this incarnational Christianity. And the idea that we don't need to get people someplace, we need to get to their place and be Jesus in the flesh right there. And if we think about it, what that becomes for us who care about the mission of Christ in our community and care about the well-being of people and the eternal salvation of people, what that becomes to us, that approach then, is much more doable. It's much more doable than the approach of, gosh, you know, we just got to get the community, those those people out there, we got to get the community into the church, it's not correct theologically and it doesn't work practically. Because I don't know if you've done the math and the geography, but all those people out there won't fit in here. <laughs> Did you see that one? And so if the, the concept is, we just got to get the community get come in here. It doesn't work theologically and it doesn't work practically. Our mindset needs to be, we've got to get the church into the community in a purposeful, incarnational, meaningful expression, rightly representing who Christ is through the love that we show other people and the way that we treat them and the things that we do. We just need to go where people need love and love them. And we need to love them not preconditioned on whether or not they're ever going to come to church or whether or not they're going to hear the gospel spiel at that moment. The world has seen enough of that sort of contrived effort, that faux befriending, you know. We need to love them authentically. That's really hard to do without continually being tapped into the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. To love with the love which we've been loved. It can't be a fake thing, and it can't be preconditioned on, okay, I'm going to love you, but you've got to hear what I've got to say about Jesus, or so I'm going to stop loving you. And those stories abound. I'm going to love you until you come to church. If you don't come to church, then I'm over it. The reason that we love people and keep loving them is because God loves them. For God so loved the world. The world. For God so loved the world. So we love them because God loves them. And by loving them, we are then participating in The Missio Christi, the mission of Christ. And the best way to do this is very hard to understand and I fail at it daily. Is to just be a real and authentic Christian around people that you already know that need Jesus. And what will happen is if Jesus is real in your life, and you're real around them, they see your failures, they see your successes, your struggles, your heartaches and your heartbreaks. They see your good moments and your worst moments. If you're real around them and authentic, if Christ is real in your life, it won't take very long before they see him there. And if he's not real in your life, they don't see him there. But what will help us is if we develop a greater confidence of Christ in us. That we really do take the presence of Christ into the world. And then we need a greater confidence of not just Christ in us, but Christ in the world, working in the world. Too often we err on just paying attention to the transcendence of God that he's high and exalted and far above and he absolutely is that's a transcendence of God that's part of our theological biblical understanding of God but he is also imminent meaning present and working within we've got to see God as transcendent we worship him as such but we need to see him as imminent because he is such he's present and working within the idea that God is just transcendent, that God is existing, but involved, uninvolved, excuse me, uninvolved in daily life as a perspective called deism. There's a God, but he's not involved in my life. That's a perspective called deism. And did you know that amongst teenagers in America, Christian and non-Christian, that is the most widely held view of God a deistic perspective. Yes, there is this transcendent God, but he doesn't desire to be involved in my life. That's a number one view of God among teenagers in America. What we need to explain and exhibit and believe is in something we call theism. What theism says is that there is one God who created all things who sustains all things and who participates in all things through personal relationship with his created ones. Theists, that's what Christians are. There is one God who created all things, sustains all things and participates in all things through personal relationship with his created ones. What we need to have is a greater confidence in this. We fall into practical deism all the time. All the time we fall into this. Oh yeah, God is there, but he doesn't care about my flat tire. He doesn't care about my kid's soccer game. He doesn't care about this financial difficulty. He doesn't care about this particular issue. We're practical deists all the time, but we're called by scripture to be theists believe in the one true God who created all things, sustains all things, participates in all things, soccer games and prayer meetings, through personal relationship with those whom he created. We are to have a theology that says, Christ is on mission in the world right now, in and to people around us. And what that then does is liberate us from that old religious thing of I got to go do things for Jesus to that incarnational relational thing of I'm going to do things with Jesus. For me, that changes a whole gig when I see and understand that he's actually doing things in the people who are around me right now. So much so that one theologian says, mission is not first of all an action of ours, it's an action of God the triune God who is ceasingly at work in all creation and in the hearts and minds of all human beings whether they acknowledge him or not. Our role then is to put flesh on that. Here's the last thing I'll say and it's very brief. In order to do that, in order to go on mission with Christ, we have to first go into Christ. Christ we have to first be committed to a loving, meaningful, intimate relationship with Jesus. Here's why. We go into God before we go into the world. Here's why. Otherwise, you'll find yourself going into the world to get love instead of to give love. What we first need to do is be satisfied in the love of God, be saturated in the love of God, the person and the presence of Jesus Christ, then we are freed from that need to get love from other people and we're free to give love as Christ does. The underlying drive of mission is always to reveal the love of Jesus and we need to be careful Those of us that would commit to this, not to fall into the subtle trap of wanting to be loved ourselves. See, there's a lot of people that are doing ministry and mission from a place of their own needs. They're doing good deeds because that's part of the identity that they want. Is I'm that guy that does those things for those people. I'm the guy that's always there. I'm the guy that rescues. I'm the guy that's got your back. Or or they go in and cultivate those relationships because they have some love need that's yet to be met in their life, but it was designed to be met only by Jesus Christ. We need to become satisfied and saturated with and in the love of Jesus. Then we can go into the world to give love, not to get love. And only when we do it that way Is it the Missio Christi, the mission of Christ? Because what the Bible tells us is that God is self-sufficient and needs nothing. That he did not create us out of need, but out of his nature. He did not create us to get love from us, but to give love to us. And our mission is to be the same way. So satisfied in Christ that we're free to go and to give love. So the mission comes from our identity. We need to get that we are called the beloved of God, that you are accepted and adored and adopted. With all your failures, with all your fissures, with all your brokenness, with all your battles, with all your drama, you're accepted, adored, adopted by God. That you're seated in the heavenlies with him. That he'll never leave you or forsake you. That he opens up the door of hope in the valley of trouble and loves us more than we could ever imagine. He's a God who is present and waits on high to have compassion with you and is near to the brokenhearted. Who's counted every hair on your head because he loves you so much. We get that? Then we'll get it right out there. Amen. Lord, help us to get that. Help us to get how much you love us. Thank you that it's not because of us, it's because of you. Nevertheless, help us to get that. Holy Spirit, we, come, we ask that you would come and do what Romans five five says you do. You pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. That we, as we need today, and as your grace would allow, would have a fresh revelation and understanding of the love of the Father for us and that that for us would be healing and settling reassuring and resolving Holy Spirit help us to experience God's wonderful love thank you that it's bigger than all of our junk Holy Spirit, come. If you need help, prayer team is up here to your left. And Jesus is here. And he loves you. Fall into his arms.